Gracious Father, as we seek to understand more about who you are as you are revealed in the Son and given uh, to us in the Spirit, we ask that you'd enlighten our minds so that our hearts would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. It is a Trinity Sunday, or as I like to call it, confuse your congregation by trying to explain the Trinity Sunday. Uh, you have doubtlessly been exposed to a number of bad analogies and terrible metaphors to try to describe the Trinity. You've all heard the three-leaf clover, the man who is a father, brother, and son. You've heard the hard-boiled egg. You've heard it all, haven't you? All of which I fear if you follow them to their logical conclusion will lead you into heresy. <laughs> but... <laughs> we can despair of being able to understand the nature of a triune God and just give up on it altogether. Or we can look at what the Bible says about the nature of God so that we can know, love, and walk more deeply in relationship with him. Amen. <clears throat> One of the most important characteristics that we're going to focus on today of the triune God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is that he is relational. He is a relationship-centered God. And the more that we learn about God's relational nature, how he relates to us, the more we learn about ourselves and the purpose that God has for our lives. In the Old Testament, God makes very clear to his people that he's one when he reveals himself. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we get what Jesus calls the greatest commandment. And uh, the Israelites refer to this as the Shema. Jews refer, refer to this as the Shema, which means listen or hear. And it says this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so from the very beginning, we learn two fundamental things about the nature of God. One is that he is one. The Lord, our God is one. And two, he is relational. You shall love the Lord, your God. And then all throughout the Old Testament, we start to see uh, prophecies from the prophets about a figure, a Messiah figure, who is going to show up. And we read interesting things like this, like we do every year on Christmas from Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. And then we hear uh, God say in Ezekiel chapter 34 when he is uh, speaking to the failed leadership of Israel who have failed to be faithful shepherds to the sheep. He says things like, I myself will come and sh be the shepherd of my sheep. Which we then, of course, hear echoed in the words of Jesus. I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. So then we come to this person of Jesus in the New Testament about 400 years after the Old Testament uh, is finished. And he starts doing and saying things that only God is allowed to say and do. One of the prime examples is in Matthew chapter 9. When Jesus does this sort of thing, he's always getting the authorities stirred up. We read this. Some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, 
Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Why is he blaspheming? Who alone can forgive sins? God. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's the point. And then uh, he says things. He says things like before Abraham was, I am using the very words which the God of Israel revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. Who will I tell him sent me? Tell them I am will be with you. And we hear those words on Jesus's lips. I am over and over and over again, all throughout John's gospel. Do you think he's trying to send us a message? So there seems to be two persons, a father and a son, who share the same identity, namely God. And what one does is a reflection of the other. Isn't it interesting? Jesus says, Philip, don't you know, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. He says things like, my father is working and I am working. He's always reflecting the father. And then as if uh, these matters weren't confusing enough already, a third person gets introduced to us who also seems to be divine. Jesus tells his disciples, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send one who will be with you and in you. Then we get to our gospel reading today and we hear Jesus say this, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. In other words, I am going to make known my heart and the Father's heart and our thoughts known to you. I'm going to declare it to you by putting my spirit in you. See, we can keep going back and circling back to this idea that God is relational. See, this is about the Holy Spirit is about God personally communicating truth to us because he wants us to know what is truth. Truth about the way that we should live, our lifestyles, our decisions, but also about the nature, the truth of who he is as the one true God. And so he gives us the spirit of truth. And so we've got these three persons who all seem to share in the same identity of God. But in some, through all of this, what we see happening is that God prioritizes relationship. He sends the son to pay for the sins of the world. Why? Because he wants relationship with the world. And he sends the spirit so that the church, his children, his sons and daughters can continue to have communication with him without the bodily presence of Jesus being present. You see how relationship centered the father, the son and the Holy Spirit are. Did you ever noticed that Jesus is a person who is all about relating to people. See, now we're going to look at, we're going to talk about the value of, of people, of who we are in God's eyes, because if you don't understand the value of who you are in God's eyes, if you don't understand your identity and who you are in God's eyes, you'll never be able to love and worship God. Notice how Jesus pays attention to people. Jesus is always, he's a person who's all about relating to people. 
He's always with people. He spends his days, entire days and nights ministering to crowds of people until he's literally exhausted. He heals the sick. He delivers the demonically oppressed. He feeds the hungry and he teaches people what? How to walk in relationship with their heavenly father. It's like God before the world began thought if they don't or before he sent Jesus said, if they don't already see that my goal is relationship, let me come into the world as a human person and demonstrate that I'm not a distant deity who merely wants uh, perfect religious practices, but I want to see, I want them to see that I want them. And that's what we see in the sun. A God who becomes human to make himself known to humanity. And a God who does that, who who becomes human to make himself known to humanity, is a God desperate for a relationship with his creatures. Say this, God is desperate for a relationship with me. God is desperate for a relationship with me. And he cares not just about people in general, but about every individual. Have you noticed in the gospels that Jesus will often shift his focus to an individual, even though the crowds are clamoring for his attention? The uh, blind Bartimaeus who's calling out to him, Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on me. And they're all going, shut up, shut up. He's too busy. And Jesus says, bring him over to me. Right. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? What is your need? Right? He stops in the midst of the crowd being uh, surrounded by multitudes and says, I hear the voice of an individual calling out for me. That's how Jesus is. If I hear someone say, um, and I hear this a lot, um, something like, I don't want to bother God with my small issue. He's, he's got bigger fish to fry. I know that person's image of God needs to be healed. That's an image of God that needs to be healed. It's an image that says God doesn't really have time for me. He's too big and mighty and too distant to care about my small needs. Uh, the spiritual writer A.W. Tozer wrote this. as it says it beautifully. He says, an infinite God can give all of himself to each of his children. He does not distribute himself that each may have a part, but to each one he gives all of himself as fully as if there were no others. Friends, we need to understand who we are in God's eyes to even begin to desire relationship with him. Because if you don't see God as relationship-centered and as eagerly yearning for relationship with you, you won't be all that interested in seeking him. Uh, We read from Psalm 8 today together just a few minutes ago. Um, Now, Scripture is not uh, hesitant to paint a pretty grim picture of humanity in our sin and rebellion, right? We've all seen that. We all see that pretty clear on the scripture uh, uh, pages of scripture. But scripture also, and we can't miss this, scripture also paints a picture of how we are the pinnacle of God's creation and we are royalty in his eyes. That he created us to be royal rulers, partners with him over his good creation. Now we hear this in Psalm chapter 8. Where it says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the galaxies, the billions of galaxies and billions and tens and billions of stars and the the immensity of the universe, the moon and the stars you have set in their courses, what is man that you should be mindful of him? The son of man that you should seek him out. You see, not only is God aware of our existence, he's actually mindful of it in a very intimate 
and personal way. He pays close attention. This made me think of how when I take my kids to the playground, um, I'm watching out for their safety. I'm paying close attention to what they're doing because they're one and three. They're not able to really uh, look out for themselves yet. And so I'm paying close attention. I'm watching out for that their safety. Stop leaning over that edge. Be careful. Why? Oh, and then I also celebrate the things that they are able to do for the first time. Oh, you made it, honey. You made it down that big, scary slide. How wonderful. That was so brave. You see, I'm paying close attention. I'm mindful of them, watching out for them. So when we look at the triune God, we are looking not at a confusing concept that we need to try to sort out intellectually. We are looking at a God whose nature is to draw people into the communal, eternal relationship that he has within himself. You see, the Father and the Son have been in relationship with one another for all of eternity in the communion of the Holy Spirit. Remember when Jesus is praying for his disciples at the end of John's gospel? It's like he's like praying to the Father to like let them know things about him and about the nature of God. And he says things like this. I pray that you would reveal to them, Father, now glorify myself with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, they have always been together in relationship. This is what I say to my Jehovah's Witnesses friends who don't believe that Jesus is eternal and divine. Say, do you believe God is love? Yes. So then that's an eternal attribute of God the creator is that he's love. They say yes. I say, but if you have the characteristic of love, love cannot exist without an object towards which its affection is pointed. So if God is eternal and he's love, Who was the object of his love before he created the world? And, you know, they scratch their heads or move on to another verse. You see, I'm not trying to be rude towards Jehovah's Witnesses. What I'm trying to show is that Jesus is eternal and divine, and he has always enjoyed fellowship, relationship with his Father in the communion of the Holy Spirit. So we've looked at the Trinitarian nature of God and how it reveals to us a relationship-focused God. And we've looked at how this God values every single individual paying attention to every detail of our lives. But we haven't dealt with a fundamental problem. And the fundamental problem is that in our heart of hearts, we reject this relationship. We ignore this God most of the time. We live in opposition to his purposes for us. We live for ourselves. We don't seek after him. We prefer to do life on our own, except for when we need something from him. And you see, this is why, this is why the cross of Jesus must be at the center of our relationship with this relational God. Paul says these famous or maybe infamous words in Romans chapter three, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, we forsook the glory he desired to share with us when he offered us relationship and partnership in caring for the world, in in loving and caring for each other, and in worshiping him, we forsook that. And we all stand guilty before him, just like Adam and Eve. And yet, how does he respond to that first blatant act of rebellion? He goes after them, and the first words out of his mouth are, where are you? Because he's a God who pursues 
because he's relational in nature. And as humanity moved further and further and further away from him throughout history, he moved closer and closer until he himself became one of us to make the ultimate sacrifice for sin. I read this recently. Many people visualize a God who sits comfortably on a distant throne, remote, aloof, uninterested, and indifferent to the needs of mortals until it may be they can badger him into taking action on their behalf. Such a view is wholly false. The Bible reveals a God who long before it even occurs to man to turn to him, while man is still lost in darkness and sunk in sin, takes the initiative, rises from his throne, lays aside his glory, and stoops to seek until he finds them. Friends, the greatest miracle that this triune relational God pulls off is that rather than destroying us in our rebellion, he allows his own human body to be destroyed by human folly and wickedness so that we might have peace with him by simply putting our trust in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Not by good religion, not by good deeds or getting ourselves to be decent people. Because if you try to get there this way, apart from what he did, you'll perish in your sins. Paul wrote in our uh, letter to the Romans that we just heard from this morning, the good news. A couple chapters earlier, he says, everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. He says, we're all doomed. <laughs> it's very, it's very gloomy. It's very realistic. The picture he paints of humanity. And then he's, he's doing that because he's building up. He's trying to show us how much in need of a good and loving savior we are. And there's a buildup. And then he gets to Romans chapter five and he says this, since we are justified, we are declared righteous. By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access. That word in the Greek, obtained access, is how you describe those people who had access into the royal courts of the king. And he says, despite the way that we live and the way that we rejected him, he came and gave his own life to be torn to shreds so that we could be the royalty he wanted us to be, to enter into his courts in the presence of his glory. And then he says this, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. You see, all have sinned and fall short of the glory. And now because of what Jesus has done, we are back with the hope of sharing in his glory. Amen? I'm going to close. I'm going to read you something. At the very end of uh, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he gives this uh, beautiful Trinitarian benediction. And I want to close us today with this. Oh, wrong letter. That wouldn't have made any sense. He says this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship 
of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you loved us so much, though we did not deserve it, because we have turned our backs on you through and through and tried to erect other gods in our lives to serve, namely ourselves. And yet you saw us, Lord, in your heart, broke with compassion, so much so that you did not withhold your only son to pay the sacrifice for our sins, but you eagerly, desiring us, yearning for us, came into this world and became one of us and shared in the brokenness of our experience and then gave your body over to death so that we could belong to you. So, Father God, in the name of Jesus, I ask that you would help all of us in this room to do away with superficiality in our religious practice, in our prayer life, and that we would come to your throne room every day as the sons and daughters that you declare us to be, that we would not listen to the lies of the enemy who tells us that we are condemned and that we are not worthy and that you just don't have time for us, so that we would be able to be embraced by your open arms, Lord, knowing that you are eager to walk in relationship with us, to purify us from the things that are hindering our relationship with you, and to use us to tell others about who you are so that they too can walk in that relationship with you. Lord, we come before you now as your sons and daughters to worship you, strengthen our hearts to speak, to cry out to you in response, Lord, with the gratitude and the honor that is worthy, that you are worthy of. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done for us, and we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.